Greetings, troublemakers. Welcome to Trouble. My name is not important. Whether you live in a densely populated metropolis or a mid-sized city, chances are you've had first-hand experiences dealing with the process of capitalist urbanization known as gentrification. It's called gentrification. They can buy the land at a lower price, then they move all the people out, raise the property value, and sell it at a profit. While this disease is often popularly associated with its most visible symptoms, like the opening of a new boutique cafe on your block, or the seemingly endless construction of new high-rise condo towers, gentrification is, at its core, a process of displacement. It is class warfare waged in physical spaces of our neighborhoods. It is speculation and investment financed by banks, investment firms, and pension funds, enacted by real estate developers and facilitated by state, regional, and local governments. The development of the modern city has always been and continues to be intimately tied to the interests of capitalists and the ruling class. Many of the cities that exist today first emerged back in the 18th and 19th century, often in tandem with the development and spread of industrial manufacturing and resource extraction. Early capitalists required massive numbers of workers to toil in their factories and mines, and so people were forced off the land and into concentrated urban populations, where they often lived in squalor and misery. In much of the global south, this phenomenon is still taking place, as farmers and indigenous communities are pushed off their lands and forced to move to cities to work in factories or precarious jobs in informal and black market economies. In 2014, the UN estimated that for the first time in human history, more than half of us lived in cities. This trend is only set to increase, and by far the fastest rate of urban population growth is occurring in sprawling and overcrowded megaslots. Meanwhile, in the global north, Today's metropolitan cities have become the command and control centers for transnational corporations, hubs of global finance, and incubators of the dynamic new flag bearers of the so-called information economy. Yet at the same time, decades of corporate offshoring and neoliberal structural adjustments have created deep reservoirs of inequality. Gentrification is a byproduct of this contradiction, a process whereby cities and neighborhoods regenerate themselves by displacing working-class people to suburban ghettos in order to make more room for the lavish lifestyles of the rich. Over the next 30 minutes, we will look at gentrification as a structural phenomenon and examine how it is playing out in three megacities, Toronto, New Orleans, and Istanbul. Along the way, we will highlight the voices of a number of individuals who are organizing with their neighbors, fighting back against the state and corporate developers, and making a whole lot of trouble. Since the financial crisis in 2008, we've increasingly seen the financialization of the rental housing sector. Financialization is a bit of a complicated term. What it really refers to is this shift in the way that capitalism has been operating and a change that's taken place since about the 1970s. So a shift from capital accumulation coming from commodity production to coming through financial channels. And what this has also involved is an increasing role for finance capital in other parts of the economy where it hadn't previously played a prominent role. And then enforcing on those parts of the economy logics of finance. Today, big money is made in cities. The real estate market is currently the largest sector of the Canadian economy. If you look at the biggest landlords in the country, 
18 out of the top 20 would fall under the category of these financialized landlords. You see things like hedge funds and pension funds that are invested in different local housing markets because it's seen as a relatively safe investment. Financialized investment in Canada has been growing since the 1990s. Real estate investment trusts are increasingly taking over the rental housing market. Since 1996, real estate investment trusts, or REITs in particular, have grown from owning zero multifamily apartment suites to owning over 160,000, such that now they own about 10% of privately built multifamily housing in the country. Real estate investment trusts allow investors to pool capital together to purchase real estate, and the real estate itself then gets managed in a way to try and increase its value and generate profits back to those investors. So real estate investment trusts have access to tremendous amounts of capital and can buy large portfolios of buildings as they grow. And then they can take advantage of economies of scale to make those buildings more profitable. What they call this is repositioning. This has created a situation where all landlords across the board have been forced to take on certain strategies to increase profits in order to compete on that market. Housing prices have been going up in Canada and indeed other parts of the world. Canada has been hit particularly hard. One of the, the hottest real estate markets where we've seen the largest increase in property values has been Toronto. In Ontario, the government sets an annual rent guideline. This is the amount that landlords are legally permitted to raise rents for sitting tenants. The guideline in 2017 was 1.5%, yet we saw a 6% overall increase in rents. And so landlords have been able to raise rents beyond the provincial guideline, primarily through vacancy decontrol. Since the 90s, we've had no rent control on vacant units. So this creates a pressure to try and make units vacant so that the rent can be increased up to whatever the market will bear. In the last year, the average price for a one-bedroom unit in Toronto has increased to over $2,000. The pattern that we've seen has been one of increasing social and spatial inequality in the city. So a pattern towards gentrification in the urban core. The demographic data is really very clear. It shows that downtown Toronto and the corridors along the subway lines are essentially enclaves for rich white people. The majority of working class, heavily racialized population is being pushed out into the inner suburbs or is struggling to stay uh, in a few remaining areas in and around downtown Toronto, including places like Parkdale and the Queen and Sherburne area. Rising house prices in Toronto have also created a situation where many young professionals in the market for their first homes have been priced out of the city. So we're seeing a lot of young professional people trying to buy property in cities like Hamilton.
The city of Hamilton's cool quotient has been on the rise for some time, but the prosperity that's got some celebrating has others worried about whether the urban renaissance there could be leaving some people behind. Hamilton is a mid-sized city in southern Ontario, and for most of its history, Hamilton was a large steel manufacturer. It's still known as the steel town, although for years now, the steel industry has been shrinking, and now it's trying to essentially recreate itself as an artistic hub and trying to draw in creative professionals from the greater Toronto area. Because of Hamilton's physical proximity to Toronto, we have kind of a secondary wave of gentrification happening in Hamilton. The province of Ontario has regional population targets and a general idea about where they want to see population growth happening. In order to facilitate this and in order to integrate some of the metropolitan areas, they've invested in large-scale transportation infrastructure. One such initiative is the Go Transit Network, which is a fleet of buses and trains which link commuters from around the greater Toronto area. Hamilton has two new GO transit hubs in the works, one in the east end and one in the north of downtown. Both of these are aimed at making Hamilton more attractive as a potential bedroom community of Toronto. And beyond that, the province is also funding a light rail transit or LRT line in Hamilton, which is going to run the length of the lower city from McMaster University in the west out to Stony Creek in the very east end of the city. This project is really going to open up the city to gentrification. This is essentially a state-led strategy of urban intensification and the levels of development that accompany it. Despite the upheaval and mass displacement that it brings in its wake, gentrification is usually a pretty gradual process and one that traditionally tends to take place in stages. Stereotypically, it starts with artists, students, and hipsters of various stripes moving into a working-class neighborhood, drawn to the area by its cheap rents. You know what this reminds me of right here? Predator vision. These new arrivals bring with them increased social capital and disposable income, and soon a host of new cafes, restaurants, bars, and art galleries begin to spring up to cater to their tastes. From there, the area starts to get a buzz, and real estate agents begin promoting it as an up-and-coming neighborhood. Homeowners decide to cash in on rising property values, while long-standing working class and racialized tenants are priced or otherwise pushed out. More middle-class residents move in, rents go up, and the cycle repeats until the area is completely transformed into a sterile playground for the rich. That's how the story goes, anyway. In reality, this oversimplified formula for gentrification ignores the important role that developers, finance capital, police and urban planners at various levels of government play in coordinating the process. But even when all those variables are factored in, the fact remains that gentrification generally still takes years to play out, for the simple reason that it's hard to displace large numbers of poor people from their homes in one fell swoop. Except, of course, when the powerful forces pushing gentrification get a little helping hand from the even more powerful forces of Mother Nature. Got pagodas over there. You've got the Church of Yoga over here. You've got the Uber building um, down the street. So you've got all these little spots here and there that are quickly making it. So this is actually a high traffic area of primarily white people that are not from here carrying yoga mats. That's what this area that used to be a very poor area got replaced with. I've seen the city go through uh, changes in my life. 
the building of the Crescent City Connection. That bridge transformed this community in a multitude of ways. With that bridge came Urban Renewal, one of the oldest African communities was displaced in order to build a, a housing project. The third would be Betsy, Hurricane Betsy. Because of Betsy, people that were normally be still living down the bayou or in the night ward would have remained in those areas. But because of the devastation of those communities, it forced them to come into a community that was being rebuilt and reborn. And then Katrina. Out of all of them, Katrina was the worst. It had the most devastating impact on the community. I moved to New Orleans in 2014. I'm from Venezuela and my country's consulate had closed down in Miami, so I came here to get my passport. There was also some immigration restrictions that, that encouraged me to move here. A big factor was uh, connected to gentrification, which is um, moving here because housing is more affordable mm -hmm. after Katrina and because employment was something that I could find here more accessible than in South Florida. Because of Katrina and um, the dis great displacement of local communities, after Katrina and during Katrina, to be a guest in this city and to be a resident in the city post Katrina and be a respectful guest, you have to be very aware of the racial dynamics of who has been displaced and who has been the demographic replacing um, the people who are no longer able to come back to the city alongside with millions of dynamics that go anywhere from microaggressions to being a major player in gentrification and in the systems that are negatively impacting and negatively affecting the communities here. Katrina was also the very first major disaster where FEMA came under Homeland Security. For the first two weeks after Katrina, it was all about security. You know, they felt, they felt like all those that matter have left. Those who was left in the city don't even really matter. And they made that crystal clear by the action. With that and the advent of disaster capitalism, seeing everything from trash removal to uh, the removal of bodies was held up until certain individuals got their contracts. You had billions of dollars that was allocated to a city with a population of less than a half a million. Billions but it impacted no one that really had the needs. The needs of the community have gone unaddressed and instead what has been prioritized has been profit and the passing of policies that have been geared towards making profit from the displacement of people. Looking at prisons and the jail systems now and how much of the money that the government gives is still going towards allegedly restoring or rebuilding or expanding the jail or the prisons or rebuilding or expanding new hospitals which are more for profit and they're not as affordable. With all these examples you can see how the city systemically is still taking money from the disaster and still profiting from the displacement of the community here and investing that money in for-profit projects that are geared towards tourists or geared towards upper-class guests or upper-class residents as opposed to working-class communities and poor communities and particularly communities of color which 
was the majority of people in New Orleans before Katrina. People are being priced out of their homes. A unit that was maybe 500 during pre-Katrina, now is somewhere around 12. Developers are coming in. You know, now you have the advent of the uh, Airbnb. You know, you have uh, New Orleans that is a uh, as constantly being transformed around us. You see a lot of whites and others coming into a predominantly African-American community. Directly after Katrina, everybody basically had to evacuate the city. A lot of the housing that could have been restored was not restored. Instead, it was taken down and new housing that's not affordable was built up or businesses were built up. In general, we've seen almost no efforts to bring back uh, people that were displaced by Katrina. And instead, we're seeing efforts to continue to profit from making more tourist hotspots the industry that's really running the city is tourism, white tourism, and it's controlled by white dollars. And they control not only the white tourists, but they control about 90% of the black tourism. Uh, a lot of the money that's being given to New Orleans from the government is going to the expansion of prisons or the attempts at building new prisons. It's completely a for-profit organization, so a lot of the money is being either misplaced into making more profit from poverty and crime and displacement, or it's being put into development that is to better assist the communities that are not from New Orleans. So it's being put to renovate businesses or to make the business sectors and the upper class sectors and the tourism sectors of the city better and it's not being distributed in the places where it's the most needed. This is a city that's ran by the police because it's ran by tourism. And only with tourism is to survive, it got to be protected. The brutality of police, it don't have nowhere near the impact of poverty. That's the most cruel thing. You know, you be living in a block and one person got a Mercedes, then you catching a bus. I watched Trouble, we gotta stop it. Ten years ago, the international financial system nearly collapsed. A historically unprecedented housing bubble in the United States burst setting off a chain reaction that ended up threatening the institutional pillars of global capitalism itself. As millions of people lost their homes, governments around the world scrambled to bail out the banks and pump money back into the global economy. But rather than spending that money on rebuilding the local communities that they just destroyed, the banks poured that money into a number of so-called emerging economies, a prime example being Turkey. Back in 2008, Turkey was already in the midst of a construction boom, and the flooding in of billions of dollars in foreign investment only quickened the pace. In the five years between 2011 and 2016, housing prices in Turkey doubled. Much of this growth was concentrated in Istanbul, the sprawling metropolis of over 15 million people that once served as the capital of the Byzantine and Ottoman empires, and which for over 2,000 years has remained the primary bridge between the continents of Europe and Asia. The dizzying pace of urban transformation in this former Ottoman capital has been closely linked to the dictatorial ambitions of the country's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who has sought to use the reconstruction of Istanbul as a tool for consolidating power around a new national identity. If we talk about the global 
capitalist crisis, it's obvious that the states are uh, trying their best to get over this crisis with the tool of urban gentrification because they have the, the companies, they have the lawmaking. The capitalization process of Istanbul city is not a new thing. It is a long-term project of the state. We are talking about over 50 years, the last 12 years. The process get faster in the government of the AKP. These urban gentrification projects always has been a resource of income for the state. These pro projects has been widely spread and they started to change the face of the city and now they are uh, making it more and more easier to make this. In the beginning it was only possible to destroy that building and uh, make a new one with the consensus of the all people living in but now they make it the majority of people and the state of emergency also helped to build this uh, legal process more and more easier. For last four or five years they are nationalizing the private spaces. By these practices they are trying to change the type of the capitalist power. It is also politic of homogenizing the people, deleting all cultures and force them to be Muslim, force them to be Sunni, Muslim and Turkish people, which is the identity of the state. For Istanbul, you can see there are big walls which are coming from Ottoman or Byzantine time. Out of the walls, they have built the slums. The builders of the Gecekondu areas, slums areas, are so-called minorities. It's not just Alevis and Kurds, but also Roman people. People who had immigrated from village to big cities like Istanbul. From the beginning, these neighborhoods like Gazi neighborhood, like Birmayes neighborhood, and Küçükarmutlu, all these neighborhoods were built with the participation of the all community and caring and thinking about all the needs of that community. So uh, this slums means more than just spaces to live, but it's also a way of relationship that people are caring about each other. During 1960s and 1980s, many revolutionary organizations have appeared and this is important because next residents of these regions would be the organizers of the first actions against the destruction politics of the state. Taksim Gezi riots have been started against the making there to a mall. Gezi Park protests became so popular. The rioters of Taksim Gezi have achieved to collectivize the park. And this is a uh, great example 
of how we can struggle against the gentrification politics, against the, the space politics of the states and the companies. The meaning of the park, meaning of the space have been changed. People got the control of the park and the space has a political meaning. When we uh, look uh, what happened after Gezi, that, that riots, that people coming together and occupation of the Gezi Park becomes something to hold and many people go on resisting. After the Gezi Park was evicted, the social resistance was very high and people were not afraid to go on the streets anymore. And that also affected, in a way, urban gentrification um, protests and many other protests. But as the oppression become more and more uh, visible, and that social uh, opposition became less and less seen, uh, that also has its effects on urban gentrification. During one week, the Turkish state have been killed over 10 young people. We are not just talking about a day, we are talking about years where people have been oppressed politically, socially and economically. One of the first things that they are trying to break is the relationship in these neighborhoods. The culture of resistance and the culture of solidarity. It is not just a struggle against the gentrification projects. It is against the violence and the terror of the state. Looking for trouble? These days, gentrification can often seem inevitable. It is, after all, a constant process, firmly anchored upon the sanctity of private property and the unshakable logic of the free market. The biggest enemies of the free market are all in favor of freedom for themselves. Except even now, they aren't even in favor of that with this politically correct nonsense. According to this cold logic, homes and the land that they're built on are commodities like any other. It follows then that they can be bought and sold. And if the people living there don't hold the deed, there's not much they can do to stop it. Except, of course, there is. Because despite what capitalists may claim, our homes are not commodities like any other. They're much more than that. People defending their homes have been primary agents of struggle for the entirety of human history. From anti-colonial resistance waged by indigenous nations, to peasants taking up arms to defend their lands from enclosure and theft, people tend to fight hard for their homes. And while things in cities are different, and often much more complicated, the basic principle is the same. I think that it's important for revolutionaries and for anti-capitalists and anarchists who want to fight a process like gentrification, which is multifaceted, to actually be embedded in the communities that are affected by gentrification. The only way of actually stopping gentrification is getting out in front of it. And in order to get out in front of it, you need to actually be living there. You need to have social relationships with the people who are going to be displaced, and you need to help them to fight. And you know, this is not the sexiest type of work. You have to come in very humble and really try and support the work that's being done by the people that are the most affected and not trying to come into anyone's community with like a savior complex, especially if you're white, to try and fix people's problems because usually there's been communities of people that have been facing those issues for decades, if not hundreds of years. I think that the left 
are often looking for shortcuts. Unfortunately, currently, the left uh, is, is largely based around academic spaces uh, and you know, is not necessarily associated with the fabric of working class people's lives. Ground level, tenant driven organizing in buildings is, is what's actually making a lot of change. People in a building can work together, build a movement, and fight in a way that they can stop these companies from exploiting them and kicking them out of their homes. Hundreds of residents here in Parkdale are heading into their second month refusing to pay rent in protest of rent hikes. Build working class organizations that are independent from politicians, social service agencies, or nonprofits. We can't be beholden to anybody's interests other than our own. It's not going to be benevolence on the part of landlords or a, a change of heart on the part of policymakers is going to lead to the types of changes that tenants need to see. You have to create your daily life against system. You have to organize your own ways with people that are not like the capitalist relationships. You have to create solidarity. You have to care about each other. You have to take the responsibility of each other and you have to be organized. Thinking about the needs of your community and the people in your community. That comes with uh, responsibility of constantly trying to bring visibility and attention and voice and power to the people who are actually affected by the injustices. Fighting for ways that people can live affordably in cities and build communities there for social purposes rather than for capitalist accumulation. People tend to be much more satisfied to just gripe about things as they exist than to actually try to seek out and understand what is fueling the process and how they might actually go about trying to stop it. Housing is allocated by the market, it's not allocated according to social need. And so this is why you have these constant and persistent problems that don't seem to go away. Don't be trapped in the dead ends presented to us by political and legal systems. We need to find our own ways to creatively struggle in our own interests. Every day, with your every action, you have to fight against. You have to create for your struggle. Giving struggle against the strategies of the companies, but also strategies of the state. And state, it is an enemy that we have to struggle. Not just urban development projects, Every front. You know, let the fire burn. The ashes is good for cultivating the land. And then I just plant another seed, grow something else on. In our hyper-atomized and individualistic societies, we have become incredibly isolated and alienated from one another. Those of us living in multi-residential apartment blocks can often go years without communicating with our neighbors, beyond the occasional small talk when getting on the elevator. We're conditioned to keep our noses out of other people's business, and to call the cops if we see someone loitering, or if the neighbors play their music too loud. This divide and conquer strategy is intended to keep us weak, and incapable of mounting collective resistance to shared hardships. So if we are to avoid the future that capitalists have in store for us, in which our cities are even further transformed into geographically segregated and heavily militarized urban enclaves of poverty and wealth, this is a mentality we must overcome. So at this point, we'd like to remind you that trouble is intended to be watched in groups and to be used as a resource to promote discussion and collective organizing. 
Are you interested in organizing your building or starting a collective to fight gentrification in your neighborhood? Consider getting together with some comrades, organizing a screening of this film, and discussing where to get started. Interested in running regular screenings of trouble at your campus, info shop, community center, or even just at home with friends? Become a troublemaker. For 10 bucks a month, we'll hook you up with an advanced copy of the show and a screening kit featuring additional resources and some questions you can use to get a discussion going. If you can't afford to support us financially, no worries. You can stream and or download all of our content for free off our website, sub.media/trouble. If you've got any suggestions for show topics or just want to get in touch, drop us a line at trouble at sub.media. Stay tuned next month for our second installment in this two-part series as we take a look at three more cities facing the onslaught of gentrification and how people there are fighting back. This episode would not have been possible without the generous support of Fernando and Mickey. Now get out there and make some trouble. The city lost its soul and gained a lot of hipsters. But does that really make it better or a little weirder? And will the idea of America come to fruition? Or is to push the poor away really the real agenda? No jobs, poor education, some things ain't really changing. It's time we learn for self and do for self. Fuck me impatient. Inflation rises, people moving, but the rich are staying. Sometimes it seems the future plans include a third world nation.